Let me pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these men. I pray that you would bless them and strengthen them and help us, Lord, to do your will. Help us in Jesus name. Amen. Well, in verse eight, he says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And one of the things that we need to see here is that this verse and those that follow it, um, they're connected to the text that precedes it. Okay. Um, so in the texts, verses one through seven, what do we have? Now, I want you to pay special attention to the word one. We have one God, one savior of all men. Okay who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Now, therefore, so when we get to verse eight, therefore, as as a result of this, based upon the fact that there's one God and one savior of all men and every man who gets saved has this one God and this one savior based on this, I want the men in every place. Okay, in every place of gathering. To do what? To pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, I want you to think about that. Could it be that um, we could bring into play here uh, passages like um, like what we find in Galatians, that we find in Colossians, that the body of Christ is made up of Jew and Gentile, Scythian, Greek, men, women, and that look what? The world is made up of all kinds of ethnic groups, and sometimes these ethnic groups do not get along. You know, the Jews had the temple and there was the court of the Gentiles. And if a Gentile came into the Jewish area of the temple, he was to be killed. Okay, so there's there's all these different groups. But now we find out that there's one God. There's not a God of. Uh, you know, Africa doesn't have one specific God, India, another, the Scandinavian nations, another. No, there's one God. We all have one God who made us. We all have one savior, regardless of where we're from, what ethnic background, uh, political background, social, economic whether we're, you know, the wealthy in Rome or were the impoverished and enslaved in Rome, we all have one God and one savior. Therefore, how should we act? He says, I want the men everywhere in every church, in every place to pray. We all have one saving God. Our response is to live a life of prayer. But then there are three requirements to this prayer. First of all, lifting up holy hands, consecrated hands, hands unstained by sin. You and I, you know, the pendulum seems to always swing in Christianity, you know, where it's kind of all about doctrine and nothing of experience a little of ethics. It's just more importantly, you know, doctrine, your knowledge, correct thinking. Then it swings over and, you know, it's it's all about living like Christ and experiencing Christ. 
And this side over here without knowledge soon devolves into something less than biblical. But what we need to realize is that not only is correct knowledge necessary and good, correct knowledge must lead to holiness. It's, there are people who know less than I do, but are more holy than I am. You see? Now, I would that they would grow in knowledge, but the fact of the matter is, the great need of the day is me growing in holiness. Never forget that God is a holy God. And when we pray, we, we can't be harboring this unconfessed sin. We can't be going to him also in our own strength or our own righteousness, but only in his. Um, if you get a chance to read Joel Beakey's commentary on the book of Revelation, I heartily recommend it. I'm reading it actually as a devotional at night. <laughs> um, oh, it is so heartwarming. And now I've made it through all the seven churches and I'm, I'm in the throne room of God. I'm in chapter four. And he talks about that throne and it's, it's lightning and thunder. That's the righteousness, the holiness and the judgment of God. And it's, it's intolerant. It is intolerant. He does not tolerate one sin in his presence or one sinner in his presence. It's fearful, remember? When he came down on the mountain, the people shook, uh, knees knocked together. But then when you look in that throne room, you know, it's this picture of a throne completely surrounded by what? A rainbow. A covenant. A covenant founded upon the blood of God's dear son. And that's the only reason we can approach that throne room. But knowing that our righteousness is in Christ, we should seek to also practically be holy. And I'm afraid that we're in, the, we're in that, a time in Christianity where a lot of emphasis is given to knowledge, which is good, but not enough is given to that knowledge producing holiness in us. So he says, lift up, lift up holy hands, consecrated hands, hands unstained by sin, hands that belong to God. You know, we belong to him. Every faculty, every member, everything that we are is his. He bought us. You know, before the Ten Commandments began, he says, you know, I'm the Lord God. Um, he's the creator. He said, who redeemed you out of Egypt? Because he redeemed them out of Egypt and he's their creator, they should live a certain way. Well, we've also experienced the same at a far greater level. He is our creator. He is our God. He's redeemed us not out of Egypt, but out of sin. And he's not done it through a Passover lamb, but through the Passover lamb, who is his son. Therefore, how shall we live? How shall we live? And so with holy hands, then he says, without wrath or anger. Now, when he when he says this, um, I think even though it can have a, a vertical a vertical application there. It is possible that a man can be angry with God 
to a degree, even a Christian, because things aren't going his way. He might not call it anger, but he's frustrated, he's upset. Every time we're frustrated and upset at what's going on in our life, it is somewhat of being angry against a sovereign God. Instead of saying in our heart of hearts, you are sovereign, you are good, what I'm going through is painful. But if it comes from your hand, and it does, it's right. So there can be a vertical application, but I think here that what we're dealing with is something far more horizontal. He says, without wrath, without anger, and I think primarily toward our brothers, that the horizontal affects the vertical. When the horizontal's not right, it's very difficult to commune with God. Because God is loving that brother that we're angry and wrathful with. So he says, without, without wrath or anger against our brothers, without dissension, literally, without debate, dispute, dissension, quarreling. Over the last year, we've seen a lot of doctrines enter into the church that have made brothers who once walked arm in arm to be totally ripped apart. And so you really need to, you know, there was a time, Paul said, when he judged according to the flesh, he even judged Christ according to the flesh. And because he judged Christ according to the flesh, he judged others according to the flesh. Are you a Jew or are you a Gentile? But then he, once he embraced Christ, he said, I, don't, I just want to know one thing. Christ crucified. I just want to know one thing. Are you in Christ? You see, we are a new creation. And therefore, to have dissension and debate among us is, is deadly. Is deadly. It's anti-biblical, and it's an affront to the saving work of Christ. Uh, just hold your place and go for a minute to Matthew chapter 5. And let's look at verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Not necessarily that you have something against your brother, but your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. That, you know, brothers, there are times when there will be disagreements and they can be hurtful. And sometimes they're, you know, I was just studying last week about Paul and Barnabas and they had a sharp disagreement among them over the character of John Mark. And uh, we never see them get back together. Um, so there are problems. And in that situation, one of them was right, one of them was wrong, or they were both wrong, but they both couldn't be right. So these things will happen. But when they happen, we should be seeking for reconciliation. And they should be painful to us, extremely painful to us. So he says, 
Um, let me just read something that I have here in the context of the theme, one God and one savior of all men who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Um, and the context of the phrase men in every place, I must believe that it refers at least in part again to the dissension that may arise between brothers and sisters in Christ who come from backgrounds in which formerly they were enemies. Um, just look for a moment, look at Galatians. Um, just look at Galatians 3.27. He says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then if you just go over quickly to Colossians, it's a similar passage. Chapter 3, verse 9. Um, he says... Um, do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him and a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. Greeks and Jews were many times enemies to one another. Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is everything to us and he's in us if we're Christians. And so we need to be very, very careful that our primary identification has to be with those who are in Christ. And we must labor to be peacemakers. The word peacemaker there in the Beatitudes doesn't refer to a pacifist. It refers to someone who is willing to work, labor, even fight for peace. To make real and genuine peace. And only the Spirit of God can do that. And that is why in the midst of all this, all this recent trouble that we not lay aside the preaching of the gospel because the gospel is the only thing that can heal this. But it has to be a gospel that we preach that can heal it by itself. It doesn't need the ideas of sociology or the ideas of psychology or the contemporary political ideas of a fallen man. It's a gospel that brings reconciliation and brings peace. If we have peace with one another, then we can lift up holy hands to God and we can be heard. Now we're going to go to uh, verse 9. He says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Now he's continuing the theme on how to respond to the gospel. How should we conduct, uh, conduct ourselves in the household of faith? So you see, this is all going back to the gospel. Since you say you've embraced the gospel, then you have to embrace a completely different world view, a completely different world view. 
Now, as men are to put away unholiness and wrath and dissension, women are to put away immodesty, ostentation, flaunting, indiscretion, extravagance, and the usurping of authority. So men, what are men prone to? Hostility, aren't they? They're prone to fighting. Be at enmity with one another. He's saying, now that you're a Christian, put it away. Put it away. Put it away. And here with women, he says, you know, in the world today, you know, the women that are presented as the ideal are by and large immodest, ostentatious. They have the freedom to flaunt, indiscretion, extravagance, and usurping authority, that there is no authority, you see. And so all of us are called to this radically different lifestyle. And what you've got to realize is the world is not going to applaud us. The world will hate us and they will attack us because we live in a completely different way. Let's go on. He says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. The word adorn comes from the Greek word cosmeo. And it means to to set in order, to arrange certain things, and figuratively, it means to adorn. From this verb, we get the word cosmetics, cosmeo. So, you know, um, a, a woman thinks when she gets up in the morning and she wants to go out, she thinks about putting on her cosmetics. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but the greater cosmetic that a woman needs to be putting on that contradicts the world is virtue. Godly, Christ-like virtue. You know, I'm amazed that what was considered virtue when I was in grade school, womanly virtue. When I was in high school, is now treated as though it's some horrific thing of bondage. Isn't that amazing? That even what the world believed was noble 40 or 50 years ago, it now thinks is ignoble and wrong and should be crushed and smashed and driven out at all cost. If a man were to get up on a popular TV show and talk about the virtue of modesty among women, he would be tore to pieces, wouldn't he? I mean, he'd be ripped to pieces. Or even a woman having a gentle and quiet spirit. Or a woman having a submissive spirit. All of that would be crushed. Some of you will get uneasy even mentioning those words. Because the world has, has at least the West, has lost its mind. Moving farther and farther and farther away from God. Now... He says, with proper clothing. And that proper clothing is described with the words that follow. First of all, modesty. Modesty. 
And it's actually translated from a, a Greek word um, that has a adios, which has a, a negative particle in front of ido or idu, which means to see. Okay? It denotes either downcast eyes or denotes someone who isn't presenting themselves to be seen by everybody. They're not moving or talking or dressing in such a way as to grab everybody's attention. Now, we used to consider that modesty. We used to consider that a virtue. Now, it's not. You know, if I had a dime for every athlete I've heard, you know, after he's you know, won some trophy or something. He goes, yeah, it's about time I, I got respect. I've been wanting respect. I need respect. People need to see me. I mean, they're just, they're just all out there, and it's, it's so wrong. It's just so wrong. But even for us as preachers, even for men, this desire to walk into the room and be seen, because even though modesty is mentioned here with regard to women, the same rule applies to men. That we're to talk and to speak and to dress and to move and to have a disposition that doesn't call attention to ourselves. Modesty. Okay? And then he talks about discreetly. The word denotes soundless, soundness of mind, sensibility and self-control, okay? The phrase, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness, communicates a principle that is applicable to both men and women. Our profession of faith in Christ is vindicated or proven genuine by our conduct. The woman who adorns herself with modesty and sensibility and good works will be an example of godliness that will have a positive impact on everyone around her. That she needs to act and dress and talk in such a way that you see someone who is prudent, wise, sensible, the very opposite of the popular, I think they call them TikTok girls or whatever. <laughs> are many of the entertainers and singers that, you know, it's just kind of poofy hair and, and talking senselessness. Many of the songs now that are being sung by women are, they, they surpass the vulgarity of men. The opposite of discretion, the opposite of being sensible and wise. Now these things also need to be taught to young men who may be looking for a wife. You want someone with modesty. She may be very attractive physically, but she's not wanting to be out there in front. She may go out in front because she's placed there, but it's not the desire of her heart. She's not trying to attract attention with her clothing or with her mannerisms. She's wise. It's very interesting that wisdom is, is portrayed as a woman in the book of Proverbs. I have met many women 
who were extremely wise. And there was a beauty to their wisdom. A great beauty. And then he says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. And I've written here, the godly woman is not to adorn herself with extravagant hairstyles, elaborate jewelry, or expensive clothing. Instead, her adornment should be her Christ-like character. Now, that does not mean that it is wrong for a woman to be a, a beautiful woman. Doesn't mean it's wrong for her to, to dress up or, you know, put on makeup or wear beautiful clothing. The woman of Proverbs, um, you know, she dressed her household in purple. But it's hard to define it, but you know it when you see it. And their clothing, their mannerisms communicate to you a, a modesty, a bashfulness, a wisdom, or when it is saying, I've walked in the room, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. You see. Uh, I've heard my wife say many times, and, and I've said it, that if your clothing is a frame for your face, that's acceptable. Because from your face, the glory of God should be shining. But if your clothing, whether you're a man or a woman, is a frame for your body, that's sensual and dangerous. Be very, very careful. And, and don't think that you can cover up an, a sensual, ungodly heart with clothing. I have seen people who dress like pride and prejudice. And yet just one look at them or talk to them for a while and you know that they were full of sensuality and immodesty. So it's an inward, an inward reality that expresses itself really and practically in the way we appear. Oh, you know, let, let me ask you a question. And, and I'm not talking about legalism. Please understand me. We should not. We're not talking about legalism. But how many churches do you think teach on modesty? Discretion. Wisdom. Proper adornment. We live in a world that has just given itself over to sensuality and lust. Christians need to be very, very careful. Very careful that we do not, you know, adopt the mannerisms of this world. Uh, one of the things that I heard, um, I either heard it or read it. I can't quote the exact the exact page or what sermon he said it in, but it wasn't me. It was Dr. Piper. He said something like this, and I know I'm not quoting him uh, directly, but is basically when someone says, look at me, look at me, they're saying, don't look at God, don't look at God. And, and that's, that's true. That's true. And we can do this in our sermons, man. Look at me, look at me. Now, um, in verse uh, 10, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. 
but rather is a strong adversative conjunction. Okay, he's going to say, he's basically saying, on the contrary. On the contrary, on the, the polar opposite, he says their adornment should be good works. Good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. And I've written here, the only proper behavior for women who profess to fear the Lord is good works. Without a hint, and of course, good works are not only deeds, but fruit, disposition, clothing, mannerisms. So the only proper behavior for women who profess to fear the Lord is good works without a hint of immodesty, of being ostentatious, flaunting, indiscretion, extravagance, defiance, rebellion. So do you realize the power just the power of influence that a man or a woman will have if they take the gospel seriously and say, how then shall I live? Even how then shall I dress? How then shall I dress? And. Um, these are not just these things don't matter. They do matter. They really, really matter. And and, and they matter even even physically. I've seen so now a man or a woman, uh, but let's talk about men. Um, pastors, we men can have physical problems in which they cannot possibly control their weight. But I have seen so many men who were gluttonous in the ministry, gluttonous and laugh about it. I remember one pastor getting up and saying, you know, the, the passage was on gluttony. And he said, well, I'm going to preach on this, but I just got done eating at McDonald's. Ha, 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 ha. And then we all have trouble with this, don't we? Listen, God says it's a sin. It's nothing to laugh about. A matter of fact, in, in literature, secular and semi-sacred, the seven deadly sins, one of them is gluttony. Do you see? It's not that all of us should be in the gym every day or starving ourselves or anything like that, but and, and we're all going to wear weight differently, but my, my whole point is we have to be very careful that in all our theology, we're not diminishing the importance of holiness, not just with regard to what we watch or don't watch on television, but with every aspect of our life. You know, there's a there's a furniture here in the United States. It may it's probably also in Canada. It's not a brand, but it's it's called shaker furniture and it's furniture that were made by the religious kind of Christian you know, group, the Shakers. And if you look at it, I remember there was a famous actor who would buy up, spend $75,000, you know, to buy a chair, you know, that type of thing. It was, the furniture was extremely simple, extremely simple. 
but elegant. Nothing extravagant, so simple, yet beautiful. And it was actually an expression of their theology. Do you see? Not some gaudy, you know, uh, piece of furniture. No, it was an expression of the simplicity, the beauty that they thought represented God. And what I'm trying to share with you, men, is that, you know, there was a time, I guess, back in the 50s or especially in the 60s where the Cultural Revolution, everybody started growing out their hair and dressing like, you know, if you look back in the 60s, dressing, you know, bell bottoms and wild and everything. And preachers, a lot of preachers, that's all they did was preach against that. Well, that's not what we should do. At the same time, we shouldn't ignore what is clearly taught in Scripture that everything about us should be a reflection of what we believe about Christ and the gospel. Everything. So let's go on. Let's go to verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, we really need to understand this and we need to understand the context of it. So I want, I want to read something that I wrote here. A woman is man's equal before God. There's just you deny that, then you're denying the image of God that is clearly taught. Genesis chapter one. Men and women, they have an equal standing before God entirely. They're both made in the image of God. However, she has been given roles that are distinct from and complementary to her husband. Now, some people have a problem with that, but if you have a problem with that, then you have to have a universal problem with that. You see, let me give you an example. Oh, uh, Michael Jordan, okay? And who was the guy, Rodman, the rebounder? Right? Who painted his hair all the time. Um, they did not want to give Rotman the ball to be the high point scorer or to make the final shot in the game. It wasn't who he was. He was a monster at rebounding. That's what he did. But when the, when it was go the going got tough, you gave the ball to Michael. And he usually performed, did he not? So... What do we say about that? We say, well, yeah. All right, well, between a man and a woman, God made a man and he made a woman and he made them both equal before him, both bearing the image of God. He gave them distinctive and complementary roles. And when it says that she's his helper, as it says in the book of Genesis, that word there is most often used for God being the helper of his people. What it's saying is she's not just a tag along compliment, but he can't get on without her. So she needs him. Well, but the Bible says he needs her. But they're different. I work here at HeartCry with a team of men and we're all very different. We have different gifts. If you have a multiplicity of elders, 
you will have those elders having different gifts. Are they all equal before God? Yes. Do they have different gifts? Yes. Do they have different callings? Yes. Do they have different ministries? Yes. You go into the corporate world. No one has a problem with this. There are men who are visionary. And without them, you can't run a company. But they can't work out any details. <laughs> they can give you a vision that is as like with clarity like you cannot believe. But there's got to be detail men and women who come back and make it all happen. And, and the thing about it is, as God has made a man and a woman, he's made them entirely equal. Both of them have equal access to the throne of God and everything else, but they have different roles. They have different roles in the family. They have different roles in the church. Now, so the woman is, man, is, the woman is man's equal before God. However, she's been given roles that are distinct from and complementary to him. This truth not only pertains to the family, but also to the church. Um, any of you ever given birth? <laughs> you, you haven't. You can't. There are things my wife can do I can't do. And you know what? Without her, I don't have a family. The woman was made from a man, but a man is born from a woman. You see, and so people who rail against this, they're actually ra railing against reality, the created order. And why do they do that? Because they hate God. And that's all there is to it. But at the same time, there have been people who've identified themselves with Christianity, even biblical Christianity, and they've abused this. Remember, the finest rules in the world, the best constitution in the world does not function if you have an ungodly people. If you have an ignorant, uneducated, immoral people, you can have the best constitution in the world and it's not going to work. The sad thing is, is many times the scriptures are blamed for people who identify with the scriptures, but by their actions are actually disobeying the scriptures. And we should never forget that. There are abusive men, silly, little, tiny men who find whatever power they can get and use it. And, and it's disgusting. So let's look at, in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14, is found one of the most important teachings in the scriptures regarding women in the church. It says, a woman must quietly receive instruction. The word instruction is translated from the Greek word. You'll know this word. Manthano, it means, it means to, to learn. She is to receive instruction as a disciple. Now, all of us fit in that category. We're all disciples. We all should put ourselves in a place, man or woman, to receive teaching so that we might learn. I went to hear a young preacher half my age, less than half my age, uh, the other day. He did a fantastic, uh, just God used him tremendously. I learned things from him. 
I'm an older man. He should treat me as an older man. He should honor me as an older man. But in that setting, I sat at his feet and I learned. Do you see? I didn't interrupt halfway into the sermon and say, well, I could say it this way because I have more experience than you. I didn't do that. I sat at his feet and I learned. Okay? Now, the word quietly is translated from the Greek phrase, a Greek phrase which literally is in quiet. She should learn in quiet. And it may denote absolute silence. It can denote that. All right? But it can also denote simply a quiet disposition or demeanor. She should learn with a quiet disposition and demeanor. Who else should do that? You. All of us should learn with a quiet disposition and demeanor. A clue to Paul's meaning is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, where the term is used to denote quietness rather than complete silence. He says in, in this passage in 2 Thessalonians 3.12, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Not to be running around disturbing everyone, not being busybodies, not interrupting other people's lives, but to live and work in a quiet fashion. She's called to be a disciple, a learner, in a quiet fashion, not interrupting, not jumping up and causing disorder, but she is to learn in a quiet fashion. Now, he says with entire submissiveness, literally with all submissiveness, our subjection. That's what, it, that's what it's saying. Now, I just want to read some of the things I've written. This apostolic command is that is given to women must not be diluted on one side and say it can't mean that. But it also um, should not be explained away. But also, it must not be taken out of context. So when we approach a text like that, some people go, man, that goes against my culture. I toss that. Or some puny little guy who wants to be leader and put his wife in the church in total subjection to himself grabs it and says, yes, indeed, I am king. And you just need to sit at my feet. It doesn't mean either one of those things. And I, I just want to read to you. In using the phrase entire submissiveness, Paul is not calling the woman or any listener to blindly accept whatever is taught and thus abandon her own reason or conscience. The Bible never commands us to do that. He is simply calling the woman not to be contrary to sound instruction or to be disruptive in the meeting place. Now, that would have been bad for men, but it's far worse for women in that culture. Even today, though no one will admit it, if you see a fight break out, a physical fight break out in a sporting event, you know, in the stands between two men. It's grotesque in your heart of hearts. When you see that with two women, it even feels worse, doesn't it? Now, we don't want to admit that because we'll get canceled or something, but it is what we feel in our heart. And if your mama or your grandmother was here, she would agree with me. 
And we need to see that. So he's, he's not telling her to, what, to throw away all wisdom, not, way, not saying believe every preacher that comes along or everything that's taught. They're to be like the Bereans, just like everyone else in the church. They're to compare what they learn to the scriptures. And if they don't agree, there's a way of saying you don't agree. There's a way of discussing the matter. Okay? Now, in a very real sense, this command applies not only to women, but also to the entire church. A quiet and submissive disposition is the only proper response to true biblical instruction. Now, here's something that people seem to really miss. Um, You remember when Mary was seated at the feet of Jesus? And Martha got all upset about it. Why was she upset about it? Well, because she was doing all the work, right? There was another reason, maybe. You guys have no idea, maybe you do, how scandalous it was that Mary was seated at his feet. She was seated at his feet as a disciple, as a learner that was prohibited to women. They could not be disciples in the Jewish rabbinic world. They could not be disciples at the time of Jesus. And the fact that Paul is saying here that when women are learners, they need to learn with quiet submission, a submissive spirit, a quietness. This would have been scandalous, not because he said they had to be quiet. It would be scandalous because he's saying that they can be learners. And that's what people oftentimes overlook. That this was an amazingly scandalous statement because women weren't allowed to be learners. They weren't allowed to sit at the feet of rabbis. And what I mean by that is not literal feet, just learning from rabbis. That's a very important point. Let's go on to uh, 2.12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, following the command of verse 11, Paul continues with a very specific prohibition. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Paul is not merely giving his preference or his opinion. He's writing with apostolic authority. A lot of times what people will try to do is divide Christ and Paul. They'll say, I I really love uh, Jesus, but Paul ruined Christianity. You'd be surprised how many so-called... Christian scholars come off with ideas like that. But there is no division. There is no division. Now, the word allow is translated from the Greek, a Greek verb which literally means to turn over or to transfer. Christ does not turn over to a woman in the church the responsibility to teach or exercise authority over a man. He does not turn over that. Now, it's all pretty, and we can write poetry when we say God created man and woman equal, but they have distinctive roles. But when we get down to the distinctive roles is when people really get angry. But one of these distinctive roles is Christ does not turn over to the woman in the church the responsibility to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, the phrase exercise authority... It literally means to act for oneself. 
okay, to act for oneself, an autocrat who rules over another. It's to take authority to yourself as the authority over someone else. From this scripture, it is evident that it is not God's will for a woman to serve in any office or ministry of the church, such as elder, that requires her to exercise authority over a man, especially with regard to teaching and preaching. The idea here is the exercise of authority. That that is not turned over to the women in the church. Now, these prohibitions should not be explained away simply because they fly in the face of modern sentiments. At the same time, they must be understood in their proper context. Now, we see amazing situations. Um, Deborah in the Old Testament. People always point to Deborah, don't they? Well, Deborah took authority. You know, Deborah led the army. Deborah did this. Yes, she did. And she was not rebuked for it. But when you see how the story plays out, you see there was someone rebuked for it and shamed for it. The men. God, in one sense, used Deborah's life as a rebuke to the men. I've seen this on the mission field, or I've heard about it on the mission field. Well, I've seen it too. There are countless stories, uh, in, in Peru even, where there were tribal situations in the deep jungles and stuff that men were afraid to go there. And the women went. And we don't need to focus in on the women of whether what they did was right or wrong. The Bible says, go forth into all the nations, preach the gospel. Where we ought to be focusing our attention is this, the weakness, the ungodliness, the cowardice of Christian men. Do you see that? And that's many times what happens, not only in the, in the church, but in the family. It, I want to tell you something. Um, I have always, my wife is one of the strongest people I know. She's dangerously strong. Um, and I respect that. She's independent in the right way. She's a person in her own right. And, and I really respect that. So I don't have a problem with women being super strong, super intelligent, super successful. But I'm seeing throughout many churches, and people talk to me about this quite often, churches that have very godly, mature, disciplined, intelligent young ladies, and there's no one to marry. My wife says that if a man-eating lion got loose in North America, it would starve to death because there are no men to eat. And it's very true. But never forget this. If there's a weakness in the church, we should always trace it back to us. You see, there was a time when fathers, fathers taught their sons to be men. That's no longer happening. So what do we need to do? If we have Christian fathers 
in our churches, we need to teach them what it means to be a man and help them teach their children. If we have young men coming to us that don't have that opportunity, then we need to take them aside and teach them to be men. This is extremely important. And one of the evidences of God's judgment upon Canada and the United States is what we're seeing, that there are no men. Um, let's just um, let's go to Isaiah for a moment. Isaiah chapter 3. In verse 1. He says, for behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water. I'm going to take stuff uh, out of your supermarket. I'm going to take away produce. I'm going to take away resources. I'm going to take away from you an abundance. You're going to go and find empty shelves. Verse 2. He's also going to take away the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan and the skillful enchanter. I'm going to take them away. I'm going to take away your men, your noble men. And what am I going to leave you with? Verse four, I will make mere lads your princes and capricious children will rule over them. Does that sound familiar? Do you see that in your world today? Is it noble men who are ruling? It's capricious little children. And then look what he says in verse 5. And the people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. Why? All authority and rule of law has been removed. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. You turn on almost any, uh, you know, TV serial, you know, uh, kids show or whatever. The parents are either non-existent or they're idiots and in the end have to receive counsel from the children. Look what he says, verse 12. Oh, my people, their oppressors are children and women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. Now, this was happening in its specific context in Judah, but it happens in every nation and it's happening in ours. Um, you don't just go with the flow. Sometimes pastors have to stand back and look at the need. Do I have a bunch of young men in my church to whom I would never entrust my daughter? Then I need to get to work. If their father is in your church, you need to get to work on him also. So this is, uh, this is very, very, very important. Now, uh, I want us to go back to 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 14. And we're going to see that 
so many people, when they read up to verse um, up to verse 12, for them it's all about culture. Well, Paul's just saying that because of the culture. I mean, there's those people who hate Paul and say he's teaching something that Jesus never wanted him to teach. But those who, who won't go that far, they say, yeah, Paul is writing truth, but truth for his culture. Well, no, because Paul is now going to appeal not to culture, but to creation. To creation. Okay? So, in... Uh, in verses 13 and 14, for it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. This is the reason he gives as to why a woman should not usurp authority in the church. He goes back to creation. Adam was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman who being deceived fell into transgression. Now, I want to read in verses 13 and 14, Paul gives two specific reasons for his prohibition given to women in verse 12. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and secondly, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman who was deceived. The reasons Paul gives for not allowing women to teach or exercise authority are not based on the changing traditions of culture, but on the created order. First, the woman was made after man to be his companion and complement and to help him as he leads in the task that God had given them both. He created man to lead. He created the wife to be his helper. Now, how does he lead? He leads as Christ leads. He leads by going forward and taking all the abuse. He leads by cutting the way through the jungle. He leads by taking responsibility. It means he works harder. This is no earthly king. It means he works harder than his wife. It means if he comes home from a bad day of work and the house is messed up and his wife is sick and the dishes are dirty, he cleans the house, does the dishes, puts the kids to bed. I tell men, and I live this myself. I told my wife years ago, and I heard it from someone else, and it's been very helpful. I said, when I'm out of the house, the children are yours. When I come home, they're mine. They're my responsibility. My wife may be a woman who wants to be a homemaker, and she is. That she chooses not even to do much in the ministry because she's still raising children. And that's what she wants to do. But if I come home and things aren't done because she's had a bad day or she's tired or something went wrong, guess who picks up the slack? You don't go sit in your chair. You go home and you labor. And you go, well, when do I get to rest? When you die. That's when you get to rest. When you die, write it down. We're not kings. We're servants. And what the world doesn't understand is the one with the most authority has to serve the most. You see, one of the reasons why people do not like this type of teaching about man leading his home is because they think that what we're talking about is a worldly, carnal leadership instead of a leadership like Christ who took the lowest position and washed the disciples' feet. That's what it means. 
Our authority is given to us to serve. To serve. And, and so now, secondly, Eve's deception demonstrates what? That she's silly? That women are silly? That women aren't spiritual? No, not at all. A lot of women are far more spiritual than their husbands. Eve's deception demonstrates that the unique qualities that make the woman wonderfully complementary to the man also make her more susceptible to deception. Someone comes up to me and my wife, you know, and they got swampland to sell or, you know, in our oceanfront property in Oklahoma and things like that. My wife, by nature, is a woman who wants to have a quiet and submissive spirit. She wants to be a person who is believing and trusting and kind and think the best. Those are all the wonderful things that are in my wife. Me? They're not in me. I look at the guy and go, hey, dude, you misunderstood me. I told you I got up this morning. I didn't tell you I was born this morning. This is my first rodeo. Don't pull that on us. Do you see? Now, it doesn't mean that my wife cannot think that way because she often does. But I wouldn't want to have a wife geared with my gears and inclined with my inclinations. I need a compliment. I need a softer side. I need a more believing side. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, as a man, I have a tendency. Where am I going to go wrong? Being too harsh, too hard, too straightforward, too untempered. I'll come down from the pulpit sometime and my wife goes, honey, you should have tempered that. Or she'll say something like, I'll go get the car started. <laughs> you go through the back door. She knows the difference between boldness and harshness. Between being strong and being severe. And many times she has to she has to let me know that I crossed the line. But those beautiful traits are what also can open her up in her compassion and mercy can open her up to deception. Where the traits that belong to me as a man can incline me towards severity, distrust, being too hard. Do you see? Why is everyone so upset? Because God is so wise. Knowing that when my wife and I come together as two people, without her, there's a part missing. Without me, there's a part missing. We come together. You should be able to see Christ more clearly when both of us are together than when we're apart. I compliment her, she compliments me. Do you see that? What is so horrid about that?
Michael Jordan was possibly the greatest. I'm biased because I grew up in the age of Dr. J, Julius Irving, and he was always my hero. Michael Jordan may be the greatest basketball player ever lived, but I think Michael Jordan could say to Rotman, I, Michael Jordan wouldn't have been much without you pulling all those rebounds off, intimidating so many people. Do you see? Now, the prohibition against public teaching or the exercise of authority does not mean that a woman cannot teach women or children publicly, nor does it prohibit a woman from helping her husband or even another man come to a clearer understanding of God and his will, but all in its appropriate order and with appropriate attitude. In Acts 18.26, Priscilla and her husband Aquila were both used to explain to Apollos the way of God more accurately. Therefore, the prohibition has to do with exercising authority over a man in matters of the church and doctrine, especially in a public setting. I know many godly women from whom I have learned many things. I have asked their counsel and their instruction. But given with a quiet spirit, seeking to not usurp any authority, no desire to enter. Remember when we, entered, when we first began talking about government and everything and we talked about that the church has one realm, our jurisdiction, the government has a jurisdiction and government can't enter into the jurisdiction of the church? Well, I was made for a certain thing and that's what I'm supposed to do. My wife was made for a certain thing, and that's what she was supposed to do. I shouldn't be entering into the realm of my wife, and my wife shouldn't be entering into the realm of me. But when we both come together, you see a picture of Christ that is much clearer. Now, uh, we'll go down just briefly and touch on <laughs> uh, chapter 2, verse 15, uh, which is one of those texts where you just go, Wow. Uh, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children. This is a notoriously difficult text throughout church history. Many explanations have been given. We won't go through them. The word preserved here is sozo, which means to rescue, preserve, but it also means to save. It's used to save something, someone physically, but oftentimes to, use some, to save someone spiritually. So when we say he got saved, the word there, the verb would be sozo. He got saved. All right. John MacArthur points out that the word most often appears in the New Testament without reference to spiritual salvation. And that's true. It's used in many places. Uh, Matthew 8, 25, 9, 21 through 22, Matthew 10, 22, Matthew 24, 22, Matthew 27, 40. It just goes on. Now. We know that the meaning cannot be that a woman is justified before God by bearing children. <laughs> so sometimes when you don't know exactly what a text means, you start out by thinking, well, what can I say definitely that it does not mean? And it does not mean that, that a woman is justified by childbearing. The, the idea must be that the woman will experience the fullness of salvation and usefulness to God. She will experience a full-orbed salvation not by usurping authority over men, 
but by accepting her God-ordained role that he established at creation. She's not going to fully experience God's saving work of redemption if she tries to violate creation and jump over into the jurisdiction of a man. Um, it appears from Jude that angels got in trouble for doing that. There is a created order. So the idea must be that the woman will experience the fullness of her salvation, not by usurping authority over men, but by accepting her God-ordained role that was established at creation, being her husband's helpmate, indispensable helpmate, Genesis 2.20, being fruitful and rearing children. He said, go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. Now that doesn't make up a woman's entire life, but what he's saying is that the women who are seeking to usurp authority over men and lead the church doctrinally and every other way, they're never going to experience the full blessing of their salvation because they're trying to enter into a realm that God did not give them. But if they accept their God-given role of being their husband's helpmate, to being fruitful in rearing children, along with so many other things. If we go to Proverbs 31, we see that she was a magnificent businesswoman, that she was prosperous, she was intelligent, she's buying and selling land, she's doing all kinds of things. So this is not limiting her to this. Now, um, I'm going to read from Thomas Leland. He says, Paul's words are a reminder that a woman's deepest satisfaction comes from her accomplishments in a Christian home. Paul was teaching that women prove the reality of their salvation when they become model wives and mothers whose good deeds include marriage and raising children. Uh, this goes in perfect agreement with Titus, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now we can see, again, going back to Proverbs 31, that Paul is not saying this is the sum and substance of a woman's life. He's not saying that a woman can't work outside the home. He isn't saying that a woman can't assume different roles of authority in the proper context. All he's saying is, in the created order, if a woman wants to fulfill her God-ordained role, it includes what? Not usurping authority over men, but being the helpmate to their husband and being fruitful and multiplying, along with all the other things that God has opened up for them. And then he says, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, we know that women are not saved by raising children. This last phrase is where a woman's salvation, it truly rests. It's where it's truly found. She is saved by faith. She is saved if she continues in faith. But a faith that is evidenced by love, sanctity, and self-restraint, especially in areas of authority. And that's what Paul is saying in this very difficult text.